I met the beautiful Kim Duncan at the beach. This is where you go, ah. <laughs> yes, I'm not making this up. We met on the beach. It was a joint college career beach retreat, Panama City Beach, Florida. And it was 1988, and it was actually Memorial Day weekend. And so I calculated, I think on Friday was 33 years to the day that we met. We married about two years later <clears throat> on July 21st, 1990, at 2 o'clock Eastern Standard Time in Chattanooga, Tennessee, specifically Woodland Park Baptist Church. Of course, it's a day we will never forget. And the man who introduced us that day on the beach in Florida was the man who married us about two years later. Again, you can say, ah, how sweet. <laughs> Today is a booster shot for the marriages of Kerrville Bible Church. Last week we saw in Matthew 19 a sermon that Jesus spoke on marriage and divorce and singleness. And I thought I wanted to come back and circle back in a more... Uh, exclusively positive way or mostly positive way on the subject of marriage for that is the subject of that passage that most relates to and most relevant for the majority of our church today a marriage uh, booster shot then for each one of us and I must uh, of course <clears throat> and this is true of every sermon but uh, especially a sermon like this, I have to give a disclaimer right here at the beginning that I, I, I certainly am not the perfect model of a husband. And the things that I will share today in this sermon are things that I am working on, things that I have failed in, things I've been successful in, and all points in between at various times. And so uh, it's a journey. It's a, it's a constant uh, matter of attention for all of us who are married, and you all know that as well. So Please, at no time uh, here today that uh, I'm standing up here like I've got it all figured out. Uh, I have been on both the giving side of, of marriage counseling and on the receiving side. And I'm sure before Jesus comes, those two things will probably happen again. So let me begin with some thoughts on marriage in general. Marriage, of course, is God's very purposeful very purposeful and grace-giving invention. And I want to remind you that it came pre-fall. Marriage came before the curse of sin. <laughs> Don't ever think that your marriage is cursed because marriage was invented before man sinned. This is very important. God created them, male and female, we read in Genesis 1 and 2. He created them male and female image bearers. And then, after creating them male and female, he invented marriage and sex to bring them together as one. To allow them to enter into a physical relationship that puts on display and represents the union of this couple. And this invention of marriage is like a lot of inventions we might could use as illustrations. It was a multi-purpose invention. Multi-purpose. There was the purpose of companionship, of course. There was the purpose of a suitable helper for Adam. It is not good for the man to be alone, God said. God said that of Adam before he sinned. God said that of Adam in a place of paradise. And he looked at Adam there with nothing but a perfect Garden of Eden and these incredible animals. And he said, it is not good for that man to be alone. Companionship, a suitable helper and, and propagation, of course, of the human race. Now, beyond those purposes, there's even more. There is a divine design in marriage that God had in mind from the very beginning that marriage would glorify him and bless us. And though it will not, never be perfect in our display, <clears throat> marriage allows us to put on display the greatest husband's love for his bride and to put on display the most glorious bride that there will ever be, that being the church. And so God 
knowing what was to come, had all of this in mind when he invented marriage. And so you need to figuratively roll up your sleeve and get ready for a vaccine this morning, a vaccine against the deadly virus of the destruction of marriages. And trust me on this one, we all need this vaccine. One of the tragedies of the current happenings in the world is it has become such a massive distraction that we have diverted our eyes from the most deadly things in this life to something that is hardly deadly at all. And so I want to just go on record as saying the destruction of marriages is is the true pandemic in our world that is more deadly than any physical disease could ever be with more consequences than we can ever imagine. So let's, let's line up and let's get this vaccine from God's Word. I want to slightly change the title this morning to what was in the bulletin. So here's your title, 10 Habits of a Happy Lifelong Marriage. 10 Habits of a Happy Lifelong Marriage. Number one, love the Lord your God first and foremost. This could really be the whole sermon. If you get this one down, I mean, everything else should fall into place. But more mistakes are made here than anywhere else. If you want a happy, lifelong marriage, the first habit that we must embrace, the first practice that we must pursue is that we must love the Lord our God first and love the Lord our God foremost. Our spouse can never take the place of God. Our spouse can never be elevated to a place of idolatry. Uh, She is not a goddess and he is not a god, little g. (laughs) It's a human being, a creature, and even further, a fallen sinner. And so we must begin here. Jesus was asked one day, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And without hesitation, because he did not have to think about it, he did not have to go through, you know, like the concordance in his brain. Let me go work my way through the Bible and see if I can come up with this. I mean, I just see this as just an instant answer. What is the great commandment in the law? Answer, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. Matthew 22, 36 and 37. No human being can satisfy your soul. This idea of a soulmate is psychological nonsense based on an inward focus. It's based on an inward selfishness. It is not based on outward love, duty, and obligation. The only person that we're really a soulmate with is the Lord Jesus Christ, if we're Christians. No human being can satisfy your soul. No human being is your soul mate. No sinner can never disappoint you. No sinner can never irritate or annoy you. Or to flip it, <clears throat> as sinners in a marriage, we are going to disappoint each other, we are going to irritate each other, and we are going to get on each other's nerves. It's inevitable. so the point is no mere mortal especially excuse me especially a fallen sinner can be your source of happiness and peace and comfort in this life now by God's grace and in the means of marriage they can be the means of much joy and means of happiness and means of comfort but they can never be the source We must love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. I know you know this, but I want to just remind you, you are married to an aging, fallible, breakable, sinful person, not God. (laughs) You are not married to God, humanly speaking. You are married to someone who is a support for your life, but you're not married to the rock of your salvation. You're not married to the rock upon whom you would put ultimate and absolute trust. So the number one key to a happy, lifelong marriage is to love Jesus first and foremost. 
and then to lower your expectations of your spouse. See, it's when we start deifying our spouses in very subtle ways, when we start making an idol of our spouses in very subtle ways, that then we begin to raise the expectations for their fulfillment of our happiness, our comfort, our joy, and our peace in an ultimate sense, and then we are going to get in a lot of trouble at that point. We need to actually lower the expectations of our spouse. In fact, you'll be doing well to have no expectations of your spouse. But certainly pay attention to those which are unreasonable. We might sum it up this way. You will love your spouse best when you love God the most. You will love your spouse best when you love God the most. What your spouse, what your husband or your wife needs from you more than anything else is for you to fulfill the great commandment. And that will just overflow into his or her life as tremendous blessing and grace and strength. That's number one. Number two, <clears throat> on these 10 habits of a happy, lifelong marriage. Number two, you must leave, cleave, and become one flesh. You must leave, cleave, and become one flesh. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That was Genesis 2.24. And then Jesus repeated it in Matthew 19.5, and then Paul repeated it in Ephesians 5.31. Here's something so important. There's at least three times in the Bible that it's repeated. But this was last week's sermon, so I'm not going to repeat it today. If you want all the details on this, you've got to go back and listen to last week's sermon if you weren't here. That's all I'm saying about number two. Leave, cleave, and become one flesh. Number three. <clears throat> you must embrace your God-given role. You must embrace your God-given role. So if you're not <clears throat> in Ephesians 5, please go there now. Ephesians 5. And I read the passage earlier, so I won't redo that. But here is where we find our role as husband and our role as wife. Most clearly, most fully. Now, just by way of observation, as you're looking at this passage, Paul devotes three verses and a little bit of the last verse to the wife and the bulk of the passage to the husband. Please take note of that. He also starts with the wives and then concludes uh, with the husband's. But here in this passage, Paul sets before us the God-given role in marriage. So by the way, this is kind of pulpit marriage counseling today, <laughs> uh, or premarital counseling, whatever the case may be. But the, the, these roles are really uh, captured in one word each. For the wife, submit. For the husband, love. Those are the commands here. Those are the verbs here, the action words in this passage that is so intricate and so detailed and yet so simple uh, in displaying to us what those roles are. <clears throat> now, I want to just comment on these roles as we think about it. First of all, they're not identical roles, are they? He doesn't say husbands love your wives and wives love your husbands. He doesn't say husbands submit to your wives and wives submit to your husbands. They're not equal or identical roles at all. <clears throat> are we equal in the eyes of God? Yes, are we equal image bearers of God? Yes. Are we equally saved by grace through faith in Christ? Yes. But when it comes to marriage in the home, there are a distinction then in the roles. This is known as complementarianism. Complementarianism. Not egalitarianism. That's a, that, that's, that's, that's a school of thought, even in Christendom, about how marriage is, is supposed to work. We don't hold that here. We don't embrace that here because the Word of God does not hold that. The Word of God is complementarian, and these roles are different, yet they complement each other. They're not identical roles. A habit of happy, lifelong marriage in God's eyes is not a 50-50 business partnership. You're not 50-50 partners in anything. You're also not roommates. That's an identical role in sharing expenses and sharing duties. That's just a roommate mindset. Or you might think about it this way. Two quarterbacks just do not work. That, that's a recipe for a failure. You just don't come to the line of scrimmage and have two quarterbacks because there's not two footballs. There's one. And so there's one quarterback. Complementary roles. 
as we continue to think about these roles, they're also not symmetrical roles. Or in other words, they're asymmetrical. Now what do I mean by that? Well, in 22 to 24, Paul says, wives be subject to your husbands as to the Lord. And then again in 24, be subject, uh, wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. And so what would we expect him to say now in the next verse to the husbands? If he's told the wife to be submissive, to be subject, we would expect him to say to the husbands, husbands, lead your wives. Or husbands, a stronger word, rule your wives. Or husbands, govern your wives. But he doesn't say that at all because these roles are asymmetrical. They're not a mirror image of each other. Instead, he comes to the husband and instead of saying rule over your wife or control your wife or even lead your wife, Paul says, husbands, love your wives. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. So men, I remind you, headship is not about getting your way. It's not about changing the other person. It's not about controlling the other person. It's not about a superior with an inferior. It's not about a father with a child. She is not your child. It is not about you're the boss and she's an employee. You're the master, she's a servant. That's not it at all. These are asymmetrical roles. She's called by God to mirror Christ. I mean, to mirror the church with Christ. And we're called by God to mirror Christ to her. This is so critical that we see. Beyond that, these uh, roles are not easy roles either. They're not easy. In fact, I would say they're impossible. I've said this in marriage counseling many times. These are impossible roles in our own strength. In fact, I believe that God has called us to the very role that is the most difficult for each one of us. Because marriage is designed for our sanctification, ultimately. It's designed to make us more like Christ. And we're not going to become more like Christ if we're walking in our own strength, if we think we got it all put together, if we think we got it all figured out. And so God brings us a command that is the most difficult for us as husbands and as wives. There's no doubt about it in my mind. This is not an easy role. For instance, the passive, lazy husband is going to be apt to be submissive to his wife and at the same time selfish and not loving. And the strong-willed, competent wife is going to be apt to take charge and to rule over and to make decisions unilaterally because of a passive and perhaps lazy husband. In other words, he's call, he didn't call the wife to love her husband. I mean, that, that's... That, generally speaking, is something she can just do, right? He doesn't call the, he calls the wife to do something very difficult for her to do because of the fall. And, and something that goes against the grain of the husband because of the fall. Husband, be selfless. Husband, put her first. <laughs> husband, uh, li love her as Christ loved the church. And look at that line, verse 25, gave himself up for her Gave himself up. See, that doesn't come natural, does it, men? Now, what comes natural is selfish. What comes natural is serve me. What comes natural is I want to control everything around me. And that's not what we're called to. In addition, these are not random roles either. They're not arbitrary roles. Because these roles are designed from the very beginning to reflect something deep and mysterious and wonderful and glorious, and that being Christ and the church and the gospel that creates the church. And so these roles are not just God saying, hmm, I think I'll just make the men have to do the loving and the wife. No, he's already thinking about Christ and the cross and the church. And so as we fulfill our roles, we fulfill something with great purpose and great design from the very beginning. I've said this so many times in marriage counseling. I say to the wife, wife, you must see through your husband to Christ who is behind him and over him. When, when Paul says, wife, submit to your husbands, you need to say, yes, I'm submitting to my husband, but ultimately, ultimately, I'm not submitting to you, I'm submitting to Christ. And I'm looking right through you. It's like you just became transparent and I see the Lord Jesus Christ as my head, my savior, my master, and he is the one I'm submitting to. And I say, to husbands, husbands, you've got to see through your wife to, to the church. 
and see your role as Christ in this, in this marriage. Embrace the role that you represent in the marriage. Understand that this is what God has called you to. And as hard as submission is, I would argue that submission as a Christian is more natural and perhaps easier than what God has called the husbands to do. I believe that's why there's so much more text devoted to the husband. So much more encouragement, so much more uh, nuance to it as Paul goes on in this passage. We must embrace then the role that we represent. Finally, I would say, as we continue to think about these roles, they're not mediated roles. They're not mediated roles. What do I mean by that? This too is critical. God speaks here directly to the wives and directly to the husbands. He addresses the wives through Paul. There is no mediator then. That's what I mean. These are not mediated roles. He did not say, husbands, go tell your wives to be submissive. He didn't do that, did he? No, he, he, he has her as his audience, and he's addressing her, and he says, wives, be submissive to your husbands. He did not say, wives, go browbeat your husbands until they love you properly. Go nag them to death until they love you properly. Wives, go tell your husbands to go grab them by the shirt collar and demand, love me. It doesn't work, does it? No, he doesn't tell the wives to do that. He, he, it's, it's, it's unmediated. He goes directly to the husbands. So what this means, it's very, very important. You're only responsible for your part. You're only responsible before God for your role. Not the other person's role. It's not your job to enforce their role. It's not your job to remind them of their role. It's not your job to constantly throw it up in their face that that's their role and that's what God's word says. No, it's your job to find your role and fulfill that, period. <laughs> oh my goodness, this would just take care of so many problems in marriage, Right? If I just quit worrying about the other person, quit pointing fingers at the other person, quit getting in my mind my complaints about the other person and just stop and just put myself in a silo and say, am I fulfilling my role? That's all that matters before God. This other person is an equal in God's eyes. They are accountable to God on their own. And it's not my job to coerce out of them what God has called them to do. And if I do coerce it out of them, what value does it have? It's meaningless and worthless. And so this unmediated role that God sets before the wives and sets before the husbands is so crystal clear. Number four, fourth habit of a happy lifelong marriage is to build fences of protection. Build fences of protection around your marriage. In Exodus 20, verse 5, God says, you shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I am a jealous God. And this God would later reveal himself as the husband of Israel. And the Lord Jesus Christ would be revealed then later as the bridegroom of the bride, the church. In Hosea 2.19, God says this to Israel, his bride, I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in loving kindness and in compassion, and I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. Then you will know the Lord. Isn't that wonderful? It's Hosea 2.19. The husband of Israel speaking to his bride about his desire and his commitment. Solomon warns in Proverbs, he warns against committing adultery with another man's wife. It's a long passage in Proverbs 6, and we're familiar with part of it where he says, can a man take fire into his own bosom and not get burned? Can a man walk on coals and not be burned? And that's kind of warning the individual from one angle. But then he goes on to another part that we often forget about in Proverbs 6, verses 33 to 35. And here's the warning for the man who would commit adultery with another man's wife. He says, wounds and disgrace he will find. 
and his reproach will not be blotted out. For jealousy enrages a man, and he will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will not accept any ransom, nor will he be satisfied, though you give him many gifts. We must build fences of protection around our precious, valuable marriages. We must be rightfully jealous for one another, right? We must be rightfully protective of one another. You see, we guard what is precious and we protect what we love and we defend to the death what matters most to us. And if this doesn't matter most to you, then that's where you must start. Right, so we build these fences of protection. What am I talking about? Here are some examples of protective fences, some positive fences around your marriage. They would include such things as dates and trips together and having fun and building memories together. These are protective fences for your relationship with this person so that you can have a happy, lifelong marriage. These protective fences on both sides now will, will include affection, Physical touch, romance, effort, communication, cards, notes, gifts, understanding the spouse, understanding what speaks to them, understanding what ministers to them, pursuing them, responding to them. It includes all of these things that are part of the protective fences of marriage, right? Now, there are also defensive fences, some defensive fences that we must consider is, one, I, I should never be alone with someone of the opposite sex anywhere near my age. Anywhere near my age, really my age and, and down and, and, and maybe add 10 or 20 years, I don't know. But you're just not alone with someone of the opposite sex. That's just not an option. I'm not going to be in a car alone with someone of the opposite sex. I'm not going to be in a room alone with someone of the opposite sex. I'm not going to be in a place with a closed door alone with someone of the opposite sex to the degree that I can prevent that and help that. That's just not going to happen because I want to build a fence around my marriage and I don't want to ever even give the hint of impropriety or open myself up to even the hint of a false accusation. So we must be very careful. Here's some areas I've seen some real danger grounds, some real naivete going on. You should not have a super, super close friendship with someone of the opposite sex, unless they're family. You know, your dad, your brother, your, your sister, your mother, all that's fine. Your, your, your own children. But I'm talking about someone of the opposite sex, generally the same age. That's just inappropriate. It's just not, it's just not, it's not good. You're just opening yourself up to something potentially very, very harmful. Can you have friendships? Can you have relationships? Of course. Can you have coupling on couple relationships? Of course. I'm talking about a super close friendship with someone of the opposite sex. You are just inviting trouble. You shouldn't do it. There's no point in it. Your closest friend should be your spouse. Period. Right? Here's another. You need to be very, very careful about work situations. Work situations that involve closely working together, many hours together. Work situations where oftentimes this, this female in the workplace might, might look more put together and look better in work than, 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 you know, mom at home might look, right? That's a thing. That's an issue, right? And so you've got this, this challenge of these work situations and travel. My experience, my, my observation, most, most, affairs, most affairs have happened in the context of work situation. We've got to be very, very careful of these. We've got to guard ourselves to these. Here's another, roommate situations. Roommate situations where uh, someone is invited into a home that's a friend um, as a single person, and then all of a sudden you've got someone there in your home of the opposite sex to one of the marriage partners. And uh, often in, in cases like that, they'll be roughly the same age, and that just opens the door for problems, doesn't it? It just creates temptations that are not necessary to create. You've got to be very careful about these things because you're building fences around what is most precious to you, rightfully jealous about what is most precious. We need to take to heart these words of Proverbs 4.23. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. 
Watch over your heart. Don't think that you're above or beyond anything. If the temptations are right, if the frustrations are, are of such a nature at home, and the temptation's right, and the circumstances are right, listen, we are capable of anything. And so I go through my life watching over my heart, watching over my eyes, watching over my actions, watching over my words with all diligence because this relationship is the most precious thing in my life. Number five, number five, communicate every day. Communicate every day. I would say this is number one on the list when people come to me for marriage counseling, they will often say the first problem on the list is we don't communicate. So let's go to Ephesians chapter 5 once again. Actually, I meant chapter 4 here, so back up a chapter. Ephesians chapter 4. As Paul speaks about communication here in this, this passage, we just see some principles for our communication with everybody, but especially each other. So Ephesians 4, 25, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Therefore, laying aside falsehood and lies, speak truth, each one of you, with your spouse, for you are one before the Lord. Right? So whatever is true here is true of believer upon believer, with believer, but in marriage, it's like, it's like, right, times five. So that's part of our communication. We're honest, we're open, we're, we're, we're truthful. Look at the next verse. Here's more that involves communication. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. Is there a place for anger? Yes, of course there is. If you care about something and it's hurt or it's uh, uh, attacked, you should be angry. There's a place for righteous anger, but don't sin. Don't let it go too far and don't let it fester and become bitterness and become an open door for the devil to get his foot in your marriage. So that's, that relates to our communication. And then drop down to verse 29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. No unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. But only such a word is as good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to your spouse. <laughs> so that it will give grace to your husband. So that it will give grace to your wife. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and bitter speech and wrath and wrathful speech and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. So it's putting off, putting on, it's guarding your tongue, guarding your lips, biting your tongue, not saying what pops into your head and stepping back and saying, is this wholesome? Is this edifying? Does this give grace to those who hear the one that God has put in my life to be his conduit of grace? Right, this, is, this is another principle I share with people all the time. Look, you have the unique position in all of the world to be God's instrument of grace to this person. No one has this place in the world like you have to be this instrument of blessing and good to this gift that God has given you. It is the wise husband and the wise wife who says these words often. Let me check with my Husband, let me check with my wife. You say those words often. You don't make unilateral, uh, you know, authoritative decisions. You've heard this in the context of fire uh, reaction, you know, stop, drop, and what? Roll. You, know, you do that, there's a fire and there's smoke. Well, I've got one for you when it comes to communication. Stop, drop, and listen. <laughs> We all need to grow here. We all need to take this to heart. Stop what you're doing. Drop the phone. Drop the remote control. Drop the magazine. Drop the newspaper. Drop what you're doing and listen. Look at, listen, give eyes, give ear, give attention. And I know just as well as you do, been married 31 years in July. I know just as well as you do, this gets very easy to take each other for granted, to, to get poor listening habits in, in a marriage, we must stop, drop, and listen. We need to communicate every single day. Talk, 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 listen, listen, listen. Talk, 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 listen, listen, listen. 
And it doesn't need to just be one person in this deal doing all the talking and one person doing all the listening. Happy marriage happens when two people are constantly communicating at all levels. At all levels. A communication that's open and constant and regular and transparent and vulnerable and safe. Uh, you, you have a great recipe for a wonderful, lifelong, happy marriage just in that principle alone. You talk about anything, you talk about everything, and it's constant. Text with each other, call each other, talk to each other, leave notes for each other. Well, however it's going to work in your house, have constant communication. Now, let me give a qualifier. Let me give a caution right here. That does not mean that you share every fear, every anxiety, every complaint, every sinful thought that goes through your mind. That's not what this means. That borders on foolish. You share what's necessary, share what's appropriate, edifying, timely, gives grace, and listen, is motivated by love and motivated by a desire for fellowship. There are some things that need to stay in our heads that only we and God know. And so there's nowhere in the Bible where God says you need to be a complete 100% open book to your spouse. I'm telling you, that's foolish. You're going to do more harm than good. That is not edifying. That is not helpful. It is not even loving. It's really very childish and very immature. And so we use discernment. We judge what is necessary, appropriate, edifying, and gives grace. Number six. <clears throat> Number six. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. For this one, number six is stop depriving one another. Stop depriving one another. Follow along in 1 Corinthians 7, 1 to 5. Now, concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, but because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another. Stop it. Stop it. Except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Every marriage counselor knows this. They know that majority of people, especially younger people, are going to come in and they're going to have two presenting problems in their marriage. Sex and money. <laughs> sex and money. It's nearly always those two things. Sometimes both, sometimes one more than the other, but they're, they're top two right there. And God knew this too. And he, so he gives us very clear instructions here, very loving instructions. Very, uh, this is another fence, if you will, to protect your marriage, of course. Let me just speak to the wives for a moment on this subject. If you deprive your husband, you are emasculating him and figuratively speaking, castrating him. It will open him up to all manner of temptation, discouragement, bitterness, even anger. And I want to remind you that unlike many other needs in his life, only the wife can legitimately fulfill this need. He can cook his own meals and wash his own clothes and, you know, run his own schedule. But only the wife can fulfill this need. And this is what we sign up for in marriage, the giving away of ourselves to another person. Now, let me speak to the husbands on this subject for a moment. If you're a husband with only one thing on your mind, you're going to deprive your wife of respect and honor. And she is going to feel used. She is going to feel dishonored. And you're depriving her of something essential in the act 
of marriage. And so this obviously, like everything in marriage, goes both ways. Let us not deprive one another of affection or touch outside the bedroom. And let me just say it simply this way. The goal is to make love, not to just have sex. Number seven. Learn how to confess your sins to one another and forgive one another. If I could take uh, any of these as the most practical on the list, they're all important, they're all essential, but I would probably put this one at the number one on the list as far as practicality. Ephesians 5.32 says that we are to forgive one another in a certain way. Look at it uh, there with me in Ephesians 5, verse 32. Again, I misspoke on the chapter. It's 432. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. And this is uh, marriage counseling 101 right here. Any marriage counselor you ever go to, inside the church or outside of the church, if they don't take you to Ephesians 432 at some point, fire them. (laughs) Find you someone else to counsel your marriage. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. You could spend all day chewing on that, talking about that, meditating on that. We must learn how to confess our sins to each other and to forgive each other. We must learn this. And I find that 95% of people don't know how to do this. And uh, it's almost like my life mission in marriage counseling to teach this principle alone. You cannot have a marriage without conflict. You cannot have a marriage without grievances. You cannot have a marriage where someone is not sinned against the other person. You will sin against your spouse and they will sin against you. That's not the question. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when, and it's a matter of how we respond to it, what we do with it. And what we do with it is we confess it and we forgive it so that we can move on, just like our relationship with God. Now, this process involves three steps and three promises. Very quickly, three steps in learning how to confess and forgive and three promises. The three steps... So a sin has happened. I've become convicted of that sin. I go to my spouse. Step number one, I say to them, I have sinned against you by fill in the blank. I have sinned against you by. Number two, step two, will you forgive me? Will you forgive me? Step three, I forgive you. This is how to confess and forgive. And at first, it's going to feel awkward if you haven't done this. At first, it's going to feel mechanical. That's okay. Press on, push through it. But these are the three steps to confession and forgiveness. I have sinned against you when I did X. And you know, if you want to add a fourth step right there, you can add, and I understand that it made you feel this way. I understand that it made you feel, and you feel in that, and then they hear that back, and that's exactly how they're feeling. They're like, oh, they finally get it. <laughs> but you don't just say, I'm sorry. What, what does the other person do with I'm sorry? There's nothing you can do with that. I'm sorry. Okay, you should be. <laughs> I mean, what, what, what do you do with it? There, there's no transaction there, right? So you just, just I'm sorry doesn't cut it. I sinned against you when I did this. Will you forgive me? See, this, this recognizes that it was a sin and that it did hurt and that it should not have happened and that the only way to get this out of the way between us is for you to have the grace and mercy and love to forgive me. That's the only way to, to remove this. Otherwise, we're just going to suppress it. We're just going to sweep it under the rug. It's just going to become another brick in the wall that we're building between each other. No, I must say, will you forgive me? And then step three, if we're going to complete the process, I forgive you. Don't lie. If you're not ready to forgive, then say so. If you say, I need more time, I got to pray, I'm I'm still too angry, then say so. Be real, be honest. But eventually, once that person says, will you forgive me, then the ball is in your court. 
There's nothing left for them to do. There's nothing left for them to say. They're just in a place of waiting for that affirmation. Yes, I forgive you. Now, when you say those three words, I forgive you, you make three promises. I told you there were three steps, three promises. Here are the three promises you're making whenever you say to someone, I forgive you. Promise number one, I'm not going to bring it up again. Right? Does God bring it up again with us? When God says, I forgive you, does he then remind us over and over again of our sin? What's the answer, church? No. no. Who brings it up again? Satan. The adversary brings it up again. So when you say, I forgive you, you just promise, I will not bring this up again. Second promise, I promise not to dwell on it in my mind by God's grace. I promise that I'm not going to entertain this. I'm not going to say anything to you about it, but I'm not going to just keep living it again and again in my mind. That's your second promise. Third promise, I promise not to tell anyone else about it. Now, I say in counseling, there are exceptions to that third promise, and that would be the counseling environment. There, there, are, there are appropriate exceptions where we're going to talk about something in a counseling setting for the aim of getting past this and getting beyond it. But outside of that kind of situation, you're making three promises. I'm not going to bring it up again. I'm not going to dwell on it. And I'm not going to mention it to someone else. That's, the, that, that's how forgiveness works. That's what forgiveness is. All right, we've got to press on for these last few. Number eight. Uh, number eight, you knew this was coming. Trust each other. The eighth habit of a happy, lifelong marriage is you must trust each other. Proverbs 31, great Proverbs 31 passage says this. An excellent wife who can find, for her worth is far above jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. Why will he have no lack of gain? Because verse 12, she does him good and not evil all the days of her life. And so we see here that the heart of the husband trusting in his wife. Very simply put, there is no happy lifelong marriage without trust. There is no relationship of any kind without trust. There is no friendship without trust. There is no relationship with God without trust. It's the very foundation of every relationship. Earlier, I talked about building fences of protection. Yes, we must have fences of protection. We must be jealous and guard our marriages. But at the end of the day... We must trust each other. <laughs> At the end of the day, really, you have no choice, right? I mean, you, when you sign up for marriage, you sign up for a life of trusting someone else. You, you can't just you know, keep them under lock and key and under a microscope every second of every day. The very essence of marriage is I'm giving myself completely to another person and I'm trusting you with this. Can you destroy me? Humanly speaking, yes, <laughs> because I'm trusting you with everything. You have no choice if you're married, so you might as well lean into it. <laughs> you might as well embrace it. You might as well des des decide that this is how God created marriage, and if our marriage is going to be happy and fulfilling, we must trust each other. Do you know when Michael Jordan started winning championships? Michael Jordan was always great. Rookie of the year, gobs of points. He scored 63 points in a playoff game one time and lost the game. You know when he started winning championships? About seven or eight years into his career? When he started trusting his teammates. When the Steve Kerrs of the world started making the critical shot at the end of the game. When Michael Jordan started passing the ball and trusting his teammates, he started winning championships. He won six of them like that. That's a picture of us, for us, in marriage. We must trust each other if we're going to win. Listen, Kim and I, we don't have the same email. We don't need to. I don't need, I don't need her emails. I don't need to read them. I don't need to examine her phone. We know each other's passwords. I don't need a tracker on where she is. I don't need any of that because I trust her. I don't, I don't, she doesn't have to grab my phone and start examining things. We just don't operate that way. Because we operate based on trust. Trust. Listen, if you are all about controlling your spouse and their every movement, the root issue is a lack of trust. That's the core issue right there in that situation. 
Now, at the same time, I will say this, trust is earned and trust is maintained every single day by being a man or woman of God, a man or woman of integrity, by doing what you say you will do, by being where you're supposed to be, by living your life in the presence of God and loving God more than you love your spouse. It goes back to number one. If that spouse knows that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, they know they can trust you as much as you can trust anybody in this world, right? Or we, could, we could spin it this way. Husbands, if you're going to love your wife, that means you make it easy for her to trust you. You make it easy for her to depend on you. Wife, if you're going to submit to your husband, you make it easy for him to trust you. Number nine, we must respect each other. We must respect each other. Ephesians 5.33 says the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. 1 Peter 3.6 and 7 commanded the wife to respect her husband and then commands the husband to honor his wife. Just another word for respect. Husbands, as you live with your wives, uh, you're living with someone as a weaker vessel. Live with her in understanding. Dwell with her with understanding. And give her honor as an equal heir of the grace of life. Some people are in a place right now, perhaps in a marriage, we're going, I can't even do this. I can't respect her. I can't respect him. I want to just remind you, yes, you can. And here's an example of how you can. And, and it's kind of humorous, but it happens all the time. Imagine in, you're in this heated argument with your spouse. And, and your voices are raising and you're complaining and you're ac accusing. And then this heated argument is getting hotter and hotter and hotter. And then all of a sudden the phone rings. So you're like, oh, hey, man, what's up? <laughs> oh, hi, mom. How are you? Instant self-control. Instant lower the tone of voice and the volume. Instant respect. Yes, you can. You can as a believer. You can bring yourself under control. It's a shame that we often uh, treat strangers or acquaintances better than our spouse. We've all done it. It's a shame. It's really a, it's really a terrible thing to show more respect for a stranger or acquaintance than the person that we're one with. Let us repent. Let us confess. Let us do better. Well, number 10, and I saved it for last because it's where it belongs. And it's going to be a dovetail right into next week and next week's message and next week's service. But number 10, keep the kids in their rightful place. Keep the kids in their rightful place. Proverbs 1.8 says, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. In Ephesians 6, 1-4 says this, Children, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. So in the passage right after marriage and husbands and wives in the core of the family, because that's first and that's where it all begins, now comes God's instruction to children. And they are to obey their parents, for this is right. They are to honor your father and mother, for this is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. In other words... Let us strive to have a parent-centered home, not a child-centered home. Keep the kids in their rightful place. They are arrows to launch. They are not trees to plant in the backyard and build a, a shrine around it and spotlights on it for the rest of their lives. They are arrows in your quiver to launch from the house. And our goal is that they hit the target and they fly straight before they hit the target. Children are to be additions around our dinner table, not the centerpiece on the dinner table. They join the family for a season. 18 years later, they need to move out from the family and begin pursuing steps to have their own family. They're your heritage, not a video gamer who's living in your basement and mooching off your parent guilt. Okay? The most loving thing you can do to that 30-year-old son living in your basement playing video games is to kick his rear end out of the house <laughs> and, go and say, there's a big old world out there. Go explore it. Regarding the image of God, 
We are equals with our children. But regarding roles in this life, we are not equals. We are not peers or besties or nor are they privy to the inner circle of mom and dad. They are not privy to the inner circle. They are children. We need to keep them in their rightful place. Our kids will try to divide and conquer us. We keep them in their rightful place by a united front. Listen, have your disagreements, mild disagreements, discussions in front of your kids. That's good. They need to see mild conflict. They need to see you working through it. They need to see you being civil with each other. But never have a heated argument in front of your kids. That's child-centered parenting. That's not their business. They need to see a united front because they're going to try to manipulate and work the angles and, and, and divide and conquer. And they need to hear and see over and over and over again, we are a force to be reckoned with. <laughs> and you will lose. <laughs> you're not going to divide us and you're not going to win. That's very important. They need to be kept in their rightful place. You know that you're practicing child-centered parenting when you share secrets with a child that you keep from your spouse. Or when you push your kids to take sides in an argument with your spouse. Or when most of your time, energy, prayers, and attention are on your kids versus your spouse. Or when you live to make them happy and to like you. In other words, you never discipline them in any way. That's child-centered parenting. You know you're a child-centered parent when the kids always decide what's for dinner. When the kids always decide where we eat out. When the kids always decide where we go on vacation. When the kids always decide what we're going to do for recreation. All of those are just signs and symptoms of child-centered parenting. Versus parent-centered parenting. Where you understand that your relationship with each other is the human basis for their happiness and their security and their flourishing. The best thing you can do for your kids is to be a parent-centered home. Where they are welcome and loved and taught and disciplined and discipled and trained and launched. And you are still standing. <laughs> and you're still together long after they have parted from the family, from the house. This is what the psychologist is not going to always understand, that the primary relationship in God's eyes is husband and wife, not mom to child, not dad to child. In fact, I would say this, you've seen it, it's, it's, it's terrible to see this. There are few things more disturbing in this world than to see a parent try to make their child their best friend. That's what Earl Woods did with Tiger. There are a few things more disturbing, more sickening than to see a parent live for the approval of their child. That is upside down and backwards. That child should be seeking your approval when they're in the home and in the, under your authority. Well, no doubt 10 is a lot. This probably should have been three sermons, but it wasn't. It was one. <laughs> so let's do this as we close. I want you to pick two to work on. I'm going to go through the list one more time. So you can peg them in your mind. Pick two. Pick two. Number one, love the Lord first and foremost. Number two, leave, cleave, and become one flesh. Number three, embrace your role. Four, build fences. Five, communicate. Six, stop depriving one another. Seven, learn how to confess your sins to one another and forgive each other. Eight, trust each other. Number nine, respect each other. And number 10, keep kids in the rightful place. Will you pick two of those right now? Will you pick two of those? I have checked them off right here on my notes. Will you pick two right now to work on, to practice, to develop as a habit? Let's pray. Father, may we do so by your strength and to your glory. 
Lord, may we do so knowing that Jesus forgives our sins and failures as husbands and wives. May we do so, Lord, knowing that we are recipients of infinite grace and mercy and we can never withhold forgiveness from our spouse. How wrong is that? How arrogant is that? How unchristlike is that? Father, I pray that you would give all the help that's needed to each one of us as we seek to fulfill our roles and have blessed marriages, happy marriages, joyful marriages, contented marriages. I pray, Lord, that no matter where we were as a married, married couple when we came in this morning, that you would give hope today to each one of us, that you'd give hope that this is something that can be restored and reconciled and recovered. You'd give hope that we can go forward from here. It can be better than it is today, no matter how close and how good our marriage is. So we lay it before you today, Lord, and we pray for your help in Jesus' name. Amen.